what I found is that, you know, while I enjoyed like the process engineering work, I also saw that there was something missing that, you know, as we're, as we're changing how work gets done, it's really critical, not just to take the organization and the people along, but actually to just like take it one step further and really make sure that as we design the work, we design it to be fit for humans. Welcome to Smashing the Plateau. We help consultants, coaches, entrepreneurs, and small business owners build their businesses after long careers as employees. We believe you should be able to do more of what you love and get paid what you're worth consistently. I'm your host, David Schreiner-Kahn. Today on Smashing the Plateau, I'm speaking with the president and founder of PurposeWorks Consulting, Thomas Bertels. In today's episode, you will learn how to use your unique skills and experiences to do what you love and are most competent at doing and to make a huge impact on your clients. Stay with us to hear all the details. How do you feel about where your business is today? Most of us do our best work in collaborative, supportive environments. Come explore ours. The Smashing the Plateau community can help you build your business through engaging discussions, live events, a private communication platform, accountability partners, and lots more. Learn more at smashingtheplateau.com. Now let's welcome Thomas Bertels. Thomas is the president and founder of PurposeWorks Consulting and on a mission to make work more productive, valuable, meaningful, and impactful. He has 25 years of experience helping clients transform their organizations and achieve lasting performance gains. Thomas has worked with clients ranging from Fortune 500 companies to startups across a broad range of industries and around the globe. He's the author of three books and a recognized thought leader on process improvement. Thomas, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Quite an illustrious career. Tell me a little bit more about it. Yeah, so I, I started my career at a company called Azea Brown Bovary, which was a very large engineering technology company that I think in like 1990, when I joined, they had about 200,000 people. And I realized early on two things. One, being a person with a business background in a very technical organization kind of limits your career progression. So I found early on that I have a, a knack for solving process uh, issues and, and doing process improvements. So I got involved in some really interesting transformation work there. And uh, after seven years at ABB, decided uh, to go into consulting. And so I joined a small boutique consulting firm up in Boston. I was their first full-time hire in Europe and I helped build up the European business and then moved to the States in the, in the late 90s and ended up running the process improvement and design practice um, at that firm. And then myself and, and six other colleagues started a, a global boutique company called ValeoCon. And we had a nice 17-year run. Um, and again, over you know that, that time period, most of our work was around operating model transformation, changing how the work gets done. And what I found is that, you know, while I enjoyed like the process engineering work, I, I also saw that there was something missing that, that you know, as we're, as we're changing how work gets done, it's really critical not just to take the organization and the people along, but actually to, to just like take it one step further and really make sure that as we design the work, we design it to be fit for humans, right? So we really try to make it as, as intrinsically motivating as possible. And so that's basically what I um, set out to do with PurposeWorks. Um, starting two years ago, um, as, as you said, you know, to focus on making work not just more productive and valuable, 
but also meaningful and motivating for the people doing it and ultimately impactful, right? Trying to make sure that, that things really come, come through and get fully implemented. So Thomas, what does it mean for work to be more fit for humans? Well, if you go, there's five decades of research, right? That tell us what makes work intrinsically motivating. And it's pretty straightforward and simple, right? On the one side, we, we all want work to be meaningful, meaning we want to do a task from start to finish. We want to be able to use a number of different skills and ultimately want to know that that work has an impact on others, right? Has a purpose. And beyond that, everybody wants autonomy. Everybody wants to know how they're doing, also known as feedback. And so we know that jobs that provide a lot of that are jobs that people really love to do, right? Think nurses, teachers, or firefighters. Those jobs have a lot of those elements. If you think about how we structure work in an office environment, for example, you find that oftentimes we forget those elements and we just design work in a way that ends up creating very fragmented work processes, taking away a lot of decision-making authority from people and moving them very far away from like a point where they can actually determine just by doing the work how well they're doing. It's a design flaw in a sense, right? We're, we're just looking at so like one element of like, you know, what's the lowest cost way of getting the work done? And what we're forgetting is really that, you know, ultimately it's human beings. And if we don't structure the work to bring out the best in them, Odds are that over time, right, they're either going to get depressed and resign and, and become quiet quitters, or they're just going to go somewhere else. Right. So there's a huge cost in employee turnover. So, you know, you mentioned the design flaw, and you also mentioned that design flaw comes about from companies looking at the lowest cost way to produce an outcome. But overall, if you're increasing your turnover, that increases your cost tremendously. Absolutely. But the turnovers oftentimes, I mean, all the costs associated with that, it's kind of like a hidden cost, right? Yes, we can figure out how much it costs us to put like an ad somewhere and, and trying to fill that position, right? But if you look, if you look at the total cost of it, it's quite staggering, right? Because somebody leaves, now you have like a, a vacancy for like two or three months until you can fill that position. So work doesn't get done or somebody else got to do that work. Once you get that person on board, it's going to take them three, four, five, six months to come up to speed and be able to contribute to the organization. And if they leave after 18 months, you really gained very little, right? You got about a year of, of productivity out of somebody. But what's even worse is not just the people who leave, it's the people who stay and, you know, either, right, are not engaged at all, right, or actively disengaged. And that, you know, according to Gallup, is about two-thirds of the workforce in a typical, right, U.S. company. And, and if you think about it, it's like the other way around, right? If we could tap into, right, even like, you know, only half of those people that are currently on the sidelines and get them more involved and, and get them to, you know, have a, have a sense of, of uh, purpose and, and engagement in the organization. I think it's a game changer. So what is the, the average cost of turnover of, um, you know, let's say, mid-level professional? Well, for knowledge worker, uh, people say it's about 200% of the annual salary. That's a number I, I recently saw coming from Solange Shiraz, who is a, you know, HR analytics person. And, and, you know, that might be a little bit high, but let's just say it's right, one annual salary. My experience, I think that that seems pretty reasonable. If you not just look at right, the cost for the person, but also the cost for the HR people, interviewing, hiring manager, looking at 15 candidates, putting ads out there and so forth and so forth. So it's a pretty staggering cost. 
Yeah. So, so why is it that companies don't pay attention or don't pay more attention to that cost? I think there's a number of reasons. I think one, I think in general, large companies, I think have, have sort of adopted a, a somewhat transactional view of employees. Right. It's like a, a necessary cost, right? But ultimately, we'd love to get rid of it by automating the work because it's really difficult to deal with these pesky humanoids. I think the other one is that we just don't look at it through that lens, right? We don't actually capture right all that cost and, and attribute it um, according accordingly, right? If you run a car factory, right, and you have a lot of defective cars, that shows up somewhere on your PL, right? There's a line item that says crap or waste or rework or whatever it is, right? I, I think the the cost of turnover, both direct and indirectly, just doesn't show up on a manager scorecard. Yeah. So, Thomas, can you tell me a little bit about the methods that you use to make work more fit for humans, which I'm assuming ultimately improves the bottom line for companies, both with these the hard costs of of you know what it actually costs on the surface to produce an outcome, but also these soft costs of of uh, you know disengagement, turnover, etc. Yeah, I think so. I come at it from from two different angles, right? On the one side, I grew up in the whole lean Six Sigma world, right? So I tend to look at work processes and you try to understand how does the work get done, and to what extent does these do these steps actually add value? And oftentimes you find that there's you know a lot of activities that, quite frankly, if the customer knew that you would be doing that, they wouldn't be willing to pay you for that, right? So as we're producing this report, we send it to somebody who knows if that person beats the report. So there's oftentimes a lot of back and forth. So you can find a lot of opportunities to to improve work by just getting rid of silly work, right? Eliminating or reducing monotonous tasks or, or things that just no longer add value. So that's that's one lens that I bring to the table, right? So you map out the process and you really challenge it. To what extent um, does it add value? That's like more the business lens of it. The second framework we use. Is, is called, uh, we call it our Mojo Diagnostic, uh, short for Motivational Job Design. And what it does, it measures how people experience the work along those dimensions of meaningful work that, that we discussed. Right? And it basically asks them, right, to what extent do you feel that you have the autonomy to figure out, you know, what, what needs to get done when and, and how. And that gives us a sense for where in the organization, from a people perspective, the work is broken. And then I think the third tool that we use is actually a co-design process that says, okay, we mapped out the process, we figured out all the, we identified all the pain points. We asked you how you experienced the work. Now let's put Humpty Dumpty back together and get you to redesign the work. Right? So, so in that sense, our work there is to be a midwife, right? And to get like, the good ideas that employees in every organization have and, and just get them over the goal line and get them I properly scoped and implemented and resourced. Yep. How long does it take you for a typical engagement? A typical engagement like takes six to nine months, right? So typically the upfront phase, the right, understanding the lay of the land and, and you know, figuring out where the opportunities are, that tends to be like two or three months. Working through the design process tends to be another two or three months. And then you go into the implementation, which, which is quite frankly the most important part. Right. And again, it's like they are, you know, the client really needs to take ownership for this. So our role over time diminishes, but we're basically you know, trying to coach them so to make sure that they get to a successful outcome. Yeah, no, it's, it sounds like really fascinating and, and meaningful work. And, um, you know, congratulations on your own career transitions as you have headed towards uh, 
now, now being in your own firm doing this, I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you have overcome some of the transition, you know, the, the things that happen in, in career transitions. You know, obviously you have your expertise helping clients deal with these things. And I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about your own experiences as well. Sure. I mean, it, it's like, a, I guess in, if I look at my my career, it's been like a gradually right shift towards, you know, full entrepreneurship. When I worked at ABB, right, I had a steady paycheck and then I, and, and steady work. And I went into consulting and I joined a small boutique company. And I, I learned that in consulting, you're always three months away from starvation, sometimes two, right? And so it was really interesting to, to build like a business from the ground up from, you know, where our clients, what's our mailing list, right? Let's reconnect with them. Really, really basic things. And so, right, the, the operation in Europe that, that I had the pleasure of, of helping start really started from scratch. And so did that for two years, went to US again, another boutique company, right? So I think Brass and Strong at its in its heyday was maybe like 75 consultants globally. So it always had this right, consulting, I think, is a very entrepreneurial business in the first place, right? And then when we started this partnership, ValeoCon, um, which had a good 17-year run, we, we paid ourselves on a regular basis. But again, you have the same right outlook as like, where does the next client come from? So when I started put up my own shingle. The only thing that changed is now that right, all the other like, supporting elements fall away, right? So now it's really just you who needs to right, make sure that the, that the lights stay on. And, uh, and I found that I think it's challenging for anybody who does this, right? I think people who approach this and say, you know, I have, I have no fear, no concerns, right? I've never had to make a mortgage payment. So I think there is, it's a bit of a scary thing. But the one thing that I found really motivating and helpful is that there is no shortage of people willing to help you if you reach out and ask for help, right? Which is also what I see, I think, in, in, in your platform and in this community. And so it's really, right, you just got to take that next step. And, and so, you know, jump, you know, get, get through that, that voice in your head that says, you know, this might not work out, right? And try it anyway. So I've been, I've been enjoying it tremendously. And then on, on the other side, nothing is more rewarding than really see like a group or a team and a client really, you know, get to the other side of an engagement and, and look back and say, oh, my God, right? Look at where we came from and look at how far we've taken it. Yeah, no, I agree with you. There is nothing more rewarding than seeing those that you have um, advised, guided, supported, get through a rough time and come out the other side much better off. And um you know, happy that they've achieved their objectives or maybe exceeded their objectives. And really, if you can shepherd somebody to a, a new state that's better than the than where they started, I agree. I find it's like so rewarding. Yeah. And, and I think those become like relationships for life, right? Or clients for life. I think it's also fascinating, kind of like, you know, when people look back and I had one client I said, Thomas, you know, it's amazing, right? He was about to retire. And so we kind of like looked back at, at the work we've done. He says like, you know, We've been working together for like 15 years now. And looking back, right, it's like it turns out that actually we've implemented a lot of the ideas that, that right, you you suggest that might be, we should. Never when you told us to, right, but eventually we, we, we got there. I think that's the biggest compliment a client can give you. You know, actually, they saw the value uh, in, in what you've been bringing to the table. I couldn't agree more. Let's talk a little bit about what you mentioned about uh, reaching out to colleagues for help and, and you know, participating in, uh, in communities. I think that there's a, 
a bit of a myth around, especially in America, about the entrepreneur being this lone wolf who, you know, miraculously creates this incredible success on her or his own. You know, obviously, maybe maybe I'm biased because I, you know, started and, and lead a community that's that really focused on um, mutual support, caring, and collaboration. But I, but I'd love to hear your perspective on this. Um, you know, kind of overcoming whatever's going on inside your head about how you're supposed to make this as a solopreneur and what happens, you know, how do you get over that? How do you reach out to people? How do you collaborate? You know, essentially, how do you build your own business, but not build it alone? Yeah. Well, I think everybody, everybody tends to have a network of folks, right? That they either right, worked with, worked with in the past or, or working with, was actively in. And I think those networks provide a lot of value, right? So I look at it, as you know, people I've, I've worked with in the past, people that are in in a you know similar type practice, right? That practice the, the, the same, that do the same kind of work that I do. Clients, right? Former clients, and so I try to manage that that very actively, and, and you know, stay in touch with people, right? And, and give them update on what I'm working on, and I'm also trying to get better at really you know using them as a sounding board and testing out ideas. Because one of the things, especially in consulting, that you find is that people say want to write the unifying theory of the universe by themselves. And that tends to be a very long and lonely process if you go down that path. So I think it's incredibly valuable to bounce your ideas of others. And I think where we're like formal communities, I think, add enormous value is just putting some structure and rigor around it. Right? Because it's so easy to get busy and say, but I got to get this deliverable done. Right. And then, you know, so it's, it's the same as business development, right? If you want to be successful, you should every week reach out to a client, a prospect and have a conversation. I think the same is true with these communities. If you want to be successful and grow your business, right, you should each week reach out to somebody who, you know, can provide you some insights, some feedback, a perspective. I think that's incredibly valuable. I mean, I've been doing this um this week, for example, I'm working on a new service offering. I've done this project once. I think it's applicable across, you know, a much broader group of companies. And so I learned over the years to to just develop like a point of view and then bounce it off people and say, here's what I'm thinking. Tell me what I'm missing. Does this, right? Give me your honest opinion, right? Does this really have value for somebody? And, you know, it's like now I have like three folks that, that right, were so kind to take half an hour of, out of their day to, you know, give me some feedback and a perspective and it's super valuable and it's something that I wouldn't have thought about in the first place. Right. So, so I'm, I'm a huge fan of communities and, and, and networks and tapping into that power. Yeah. What's an example of a question you have asked where you've gotten some feedback? Well, I asked a question this morning, right? I mean, it's like I'm, I'm about to start a newsletter and I'm looking at this well, right? There is um, Substack, there is MailChimp, there's 5,000 things. And, and I know that somebody probably figured out, right, what you need on your website and how that information needs to flow into your newsletter, right? The more technical pieces. But then also, I think, right, other pieces around the newsletter, right? How do they get the energy to produce a fresh right, piece of content every week? How do they grow their subscriber list? How do they even right, initially invite people into this? Do they just sign them up automatically, right? Or do they right, respectfully ask? And, and on all of these questions, right, somebody has been down that path before. And, and I think it's a real gift to be able to tap into that and, and get other people's experiences. Right. Which goes back to what you said before, not to be afraid to ask the question. 
Yeah. Thomas, what's your definition of community? I think a community is a group of people that have something in common, right? And I think that, that you know, I think, uh, I'm not sure if watching out for each other is, is the is the best way to put it, right? But I think that are right, both generous in giving, but also generous in, in receiving. Um, I, I think that's for me a community. Yeah, and I, actually, I love your definition of uh, people that are watching out for one another. Yeah, people that have your back. Yeah, I think there's like, right, there's plenty of people, right, that right, can be critical and, and you know, offer you like, you know, unsolicited advice, right? Sometimes they live in your head, right? So I think it's it's incredibly powerful, I think, to have just a group of people that, so, you know, face similar challenges, right, and just offer you their point of view and their perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Thomas, I want to, you know, congratulate you, first of all, on what you've achieved and and uh, this incredible expertise that you've developed. We, we didn't talk at all about your books. If you want to mention them before we close out, feel free. But I'd love to know how people can uh, learn more about you, get in touch with you. If, um, you know, interested in, in communicating about any of the things we've discussed or talk about your expertise, wh- where would they go to learn more? Yeah, I think a lot of information is on our website, www.purpose.com dot works w-o-r-k-s um and you know if you want to get in touch just shoot me an email at info at purpose works at purpose.works and uh, i'd be happy to to connect and then share what i know and you know the book's coming out i want to say in september it's called fixing work it's a fable so it's a it's like in a narrative format and it's basically the story of a manager that ventures out and then tries to fix work and how that plays out for him. And so, you know, again, right, happy to, you know, share that with the community once it's uh, available at Amazon and wherever people get their books these days. Sounds great. Well, thank you so much, Thomas. Yeah, it's been great having you on and, and discussing a little bit about your, your background and uh, kind of what you're up to. So thank you so much for taking the time to join us today on Smashing the Plateau. My guest has been the president and founder of PurposeWorks Consulting, Thomas Bertels. Thank you, Thomas, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, David. When you visit the Smashing the Plateau website at smashingtheplateau.com, you'll find a summary of each episode along with the links we mentioned on the show. On today's episode with Thomas Bertels, we learned how to use your unique skills and experiences to do what you love and are most competent at doing and to make a huge impact on your clients. Are you building a community? Check out Circle, the all-in-one community platform for creators and brands. Bring together engaging discussions, members, live streams, chat, events, and memberships all in one place, all under your own brand. Circle is the platform we use in the Smashing the Plateau community. I love the way Circle puts your people, discussions, and content all in one place. Get a free 14-day trial of Circle at smashingtheplateau.com circle. That's smashingtheplateau.com circle. I'm David Schreiner-Khan. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our show. I'll see you on our next episode.